Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our previous messages dating back to late 2020. Our hope is that today's message would be encouraging to your walk with Christ. We also want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. Who here has ever been to Italy? Anybody? All right. You guys been to Pisa? Anybody been to the Tower of Pisa? No? You have? Did you stand on the tower? I wouldn't either. <laughs> the Tower of Pisa, also known as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. 850 years ago, the foundation was laid for the now infamous tower in the Italian city of Pisa. The problem with the tower, as you can tell, is not in the construction of the building, but in the location of the foundation. It was built in soft soil on an uncertain foundation. And so five years into its construction, when the second floor was being added, it began to lean. Now, construction, because of various wars and conflicts, construction on the tower was extended, I believe, over almost 200 years, if I read the article correctly. And so during that 200-year period, the soil settled, which made the lean pretty much permanent. Uh, There have been many failed attempts to correct the lean. Some of them actually for a while made the the lean even worse. Uh, In 1964, Italy requested aid in keeping it from falling over, but they wanted to make sure it stayed leaning because of the tourists. They didn't want to lose the lean altogether. Uh, In 1989, another tower in Italy, the Civic Tower of Pavia, collapsed, killing four people. And so in response to the concerns over that collapse, the Tower of Pisa was closed in 1990 to stabilize the structure, reopened on December 15, 2001. And back then they said that it would be stable for another 300 years. However, just seven years later, engineers lowered that estimate to 200 years. I don't know about you, but that's a whole lot of difference in only seven years. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the current lean is 3.97 degrees. Uh, It is not the most leaning tower in the world. In fact, the Capitol Gate in Abu Dhabi has a whopping 18 degree slope, but it was built to have that slope. It was built with the intention of leaning, not so the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I don't know about you. I might be willing to have my picture taken with the tower, but I'm not getting on that tower. They can tell me it's stable all they want. But how do you know something is stable if it's not stable? It may look stable. It may appear stable. In fact, in 2021, June 24th of 2021, in Surfside, Florida, which is a suburb of Miami, a 12-story condominium collapsed, killing 98 people. 
Now, this is according to Wikipedia. The collapse lasted 12 seconds. A contributing factor under investigation is a long-term degradation of reinforced concrete structural support in the basement level parking garage under the pool deck due to water penetration and corrosion of the reinforced steel. So that drip, drip, drip of the pool, which was not installed correctly, began to corrode the steel in the concrete and weaken the concrete. And so the problem had been reported in 2018, was noted as, quote, much worse in 2021, April of 2021, just a few months before it collapsed. And they had proposed a $15 million program of remedial works. They've, they'd approved that work, but it hadn't started yet. Other possible factors include land uh, subsidence, insufficient reinforced steel, corruption during construction. The National Institute of Standards and Technology is investigating almost two dozen potential causes for the collapse. It is likely they will determine several factors happen simultaneously to cause the collapse. Doesn't that make you feel secure when you go into a multi-storied building, particularly one where there's a lot of water? They tell you it's safe. They assure you it's safe until it isn't safe. Uh, the Surfside collapse is tied with the Knickerbocker Theater collapse as the third deadliest non-deliberate structural engineering failure. Okay, so that's not counting what happened on 9-11 or, or other things like that. But in United States history, there's only two collapses that were more deadly. The Hyatt Regency walkway collapse back in the early 80s and uh, the collapse of the Pemberton Mill, which I believe was in the 1800s, if not the 1700s, but a long time ago. So we need to make sure that we have stability in our lives, in whatever we're building, with our construction projects, but also with our spiritual projects, with the plans we have for the building of our life. Psalm 11.3, a verse that I've uh, referenced or at least intended to reference if I have or have not, I don't remember, but I'm going to make sure I remember it tonight. God warns us that if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The devil is going to come at your foundations. Now, you're not going to hear me quote Nietzsche all too often on a Sunday service. But I will quote something that he said tonight. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. The devil wants you to forget why we go through the things that we go through and why we should be living. Now, tragically, Nietzsche uh, understood the axiom, but he didn't have a, a purpose for living. He didn't have a, a legitimate purpose. He didn't have an eternal purpose. Barring some deathbed confession that I've never heard about, Nietzsche did not know Christ as his Savior, quite the opposite. And so he has no hope, had no hope, and has no hope. But if you know Jesus Christ tonight, you have a why. You have a why to live. And if you understand the why to live, you will have stability. But you got to do things the way God says. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. If you hear my words and you put them into practice, 
The life that you are building is going to be built on the rock. And the waves are coming. The storms of life are coming. But when they come, they won't destroy you if you're built on the rock. But if you hear these words of mine and you don't put them into practice, the waves are coming for you too. The storms of life are coming. The winds are going to howl. And if you're not built on the rock, you have no stability in life. And when those storms come, they will destroy you. That's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as he was concluding his epic sermon on the resurrection of the righteous. We won't all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. And if we're here, whenever the trumpet sounds, when the and Christ descends to get his church, if we're alive and remain, we're going to be caught up together in clouds to meet the Lord in the air. If not, if the Lord comes after we have already gone to meet him, we'll still be there. We'll just be coming down with him and meeting our body as it's coming out of the grave. But knowing that hope that you have in Christ of eternal life and of resurrection, and if not resurrection, of rapture, of transformation into an incorruptible body, an immortal body, a body that knows no weakness or decay, a body that knows no sin or temptation. If we know that is our future, Paul says, therefore, based on that hope, beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, stable, planted, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God wants you to have stability in your life. And so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this charge to this young church, this struggling church to stand firm. Now, remember, this letter is a letter of encouragement in the face of persecution. In fact, that's the, what the theme of this letter is about. And we've called this study of Second Thessalonians courage and clarity in the face of conflict. Paul is correcting some deception. He's confronting and correcting some deception that has come as somebody wrote a forged letter claiming to be from the Apostle Paul, telling people that we're in the day of the Lord now, that, that the, the day of the Lord's here and we're going to have to live through it. And the Thessalonians, were, were some of them were in a panic because they thought, well, Paul said we weren't going to be here. Well, why is he now telling us that we are going to have to go through this? And Paul writes them again and says, look, if, if you get a letter claiming to be from me, you already know. You already know the gathering of the church is going to happen before the revealing of the Antichrist. And the revealing of the Antichrist has to take place before the day of the Lord begins. And now with that reinforced foundation of hope in the certainty that we are not appointed unto wrath, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're not appointed unto wrath if we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. Our sins are paid for. We've trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We've turned from our sin. We've called upon Jesus to be our Savior. We have hope that we will not endure wrath. Romans 8.1 says, Now therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have this incredible hope. And so with that hope, Paul here at the end of chapter 2 tells this church, tells 
this church, our church, to stand firm. So I want to talk to you tonight, just a few verses about what it means standing firm uh, in Jesus Christ. Let's look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the, the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you or establish you in every good word and work. Now, in those few verses, I want to show you five keys tonight to standing firm in the face of trials, in the face of confusion, in the face of conflict, in the face of persecution, in the face of the enemy's doubts that he tries to hurl with us or hurl at us. Five keys to standing firm tonight, and the first one is here in verse 13. Be charitable to other Christians. Be charitable to other Christians. Again, this is an epistle of encouragement, just as 1 Thessalonians was an epistle of encouragement. And Paul demonstrates this attitude of encouragement by sincerely and repeatedly telling these Christians, I have your back in prayer. I've been praying for you. This is the third time in two chapters that Paul has told this church, guys, I I'm praying for you. I'm showing how much I love you. I'm showing you're my beloved brethren by praying for you. Sometimes we think that prayer is the least we can do. And so it's the last that we do. Prayer should never be the last that we do because it is not the least that you can do. It is the most. Now, we should never just pray, okay? We should always put hands and feet as we are able, put hands and feet to our prayers. But prayer is not the least you can do. Prayer is the first you should do and the thing you need to continually do. We should be taking each other to the Lord in prayer, being intercessors in prayer. Paul, in chapter 3, Lord willing, we'll get to that next week, is going to say, if you want to look ahead, a uh, little spoiler alert, chapter 3, verse 1, finally, brethren, pray for us. As I'm praying for you, pray for us as well. Paul coveted the prayers of his disciples, the people that he had impacted for Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, he didn't see himself as above them. He didn't see himself as the one who was bestowing blessings through prayer down on the peons. He saw himself as one of the brethren. And he says, listen, you pray for me as I'm praying for you. Let's pray for each other. Let's have each other's backs. But you show someone how you love them by praying for them and, and then telling them that you're praying for them. Now, don't just say it and don't do it. Because now, you, now, you're in, now you're in trouble. Because now you've promised to do 
an incredible act of mercy for someone, and then how many times do we say it flippantly, we say it reactively, and then we, we, we don't do it. And what I've tried to train myself to do is when I tell somebody that I'll pray for them is just to do it right then, just to do it right where I'm at in the, in the quietness of my own heart. And as I do that in the quietness of my own heart, then the Holy Spirit, I'm more receptive to his reminders of who to pray for and, and how to pray. You know, sometimes, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, I collapse in bed at night and I know there's, there's prayers that need to be prayed and, I've, and I've, if I've waited till then to pray them, I, I, I'm so tired, I, half the time I can't remember all, everybody that needs prayer. Now, we have a, a, a prayer list that we pray through and we pray over our family and our, our church leadership here and others who have been on our prayer list for a long time. And those people are, are easy for us to remember in prayer. But sometimes if somebody has a need and they share it, we, we need to make sure that we're praying when we say we will pray that we actually follow through and pray. And so let me give you just a couple other things modeled by the Apostle Paul here. Uh, when you pray for someone, let them know that you are thankful for them and that you thank God for them if you do. Let them know from time to time. Doesn't mean you have to see them every time, every time you see them that you have to say, hey, I thank God for you. I, I prayed and thank God for you. But we should from time to time let people know that we are thankful. I know I can do a better job at that. I'm sure that many of us, if we're honest, we say, man, I could do a better job of that. Paul here in chapter 1, verse 3, in chapter 1, verse 11, in chapter 2 says, guys, I have your back. I am praying for you. Let them know that you thank God for them. And here's the second thing I would tell you to do. Remember, this will help this will help motivate you, I hope. Remember that they are your brethren. That they are your brothers and your sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't mean we got now we got big family, right? So it doesn't mean that we know everybody as well as we know some of our brothers or some of our sisters. But we need to see one another. If, you, if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ and he's your father and he's my father, that means that we are brothers. We are brought into the family together. And we need to be faithful to see one another and to treat one another like our brothers and sisters. And what that means is even sometimes when we butt heads, that we hug it out. You ever butted heads with your brother or your sister? Maybe, maybe not you, but maybe you, you, those of you who have multiple kids, button heads with one another. Our mom used to sit us, Marcy and I, down on the couch because Marcy was always causing problems. <laughs> and when we were kids, when we were kids, if we, couldn't, if we couldn't stop picking at each other, I'm on one end of the couch and she's on the other end of the couch and you better work it out before your father gets home. And I think pretty much every time we had it work, maybe there was one time when dad walked in the door before we worked it out or we heard him coming and we're like, OK, we better get this worked out. Let's just work it out. OK, let's hug it out. Come on, hug it out. I know you got cooties, Marcy, but I'm going to hug you. I'm going to hug it out anyways. Remember that they are your uh, all girls had cooties when you were a kid, not just your sister. Right. That's just when you're a kid. That's what you thought when you were kids. So remember that we're brothers. Paul said, you're my brothers. I'm your brother. Yes, I, I'm, a, I'm an apostle, but I'm, I'm your brother. And, and lastly, remember that if you're having a hard time thinking of somebody as your brother or thinking of somebody as your sister, yeah, you know they're saved. Yeah, you're sure they're saved. But because of that butting of heads, remember what Paul says here in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, 
I am bound, verse 13, to always give thanks for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Now, we have an only child. That was God's choice, not ours. We have an only child. And so he gets all of our love. But I can tell you, as someone who had a sister, mom and dad always showed love for both of us. And I joke about her being the favorite. I mean, I know I'm the favorite, but, um, <laughs> but, but I know I'm the favorite son, and she's the favorite daughter. And that's how we, that's how we were always treated. And you, as, as parents, have a responsibility. I know some kids are easier to raise than others. I know some kids are more like you than others. And, and sometimes that more like you is, is part of what gives us the headbutting, right? Where I butt heads with Elijah's, where I see myself in him. And, and, it, and it's frustrating, and it's, it's humbling, and it's frustrating when we encounter that. But i got to remember, God loves all of his kids. He's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't have favorites. Just because I'm the preacher doesn't mean I'm one of his favorites. Sometimes when you're in ministry, you think, am I, am I one of your favorites? Uh, because it doesn't feel like it. Uh, but it, no, we're, God loves all of us. God doesn't have respect for a person. He doesn't take the people in leadership or the people uh, who have uh, this gift or, or that blessing and, and love them more. He, he loves each of us as individuals. He created each one of us. We're all, each and every one of us, fearfully and wonderfully made, and he loves us. And he loves us enough to not leave us who we are, but to make us more and more into the image of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And so be charitable to other Christians. Remember, God loves them, and they're your brethren, so you need to love them too. Number two, verses 13 and 14. Be certain of your calling in Christ. If you want to stand firm, you gotta, you got to lock arms with your brothers and sisters. you got to do it in prayer. But you also have to be certain of your calling in Christ. We are bound to give thanks to you. God hath, listen to this, from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, I have uh, preached on this extensively. In fact, I've just had, just in the past couple of days, I've had two different people come to me and ask me about this issue of election. Uh, can you help me understand or can you help my daughter understand this issue of election. So let me just give you some summary of some things I've already taught. We've taught uh, through uh, Romans uh, 8, 9, and 10, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Uh, we've taught uh, what Jesus talked about, the, uh, sh my sheep hear my voice, and we've, there, we've done a number of messages over the last four years uh, together on this idea of election. So let me just give you a few reminders very quickly. When we see this term of calling or being chosen, or sometimes it's the word elect, Remember that election in Scripture always in some way in the context, and we're going to see it again here tonight in a moment, always in the context deals with service, God choosing you for service, never for salvation. What that means is we are not chosen to be in Christ. In Christ, we are chosen. If you are in Christ, you are chosen. Paul says in Ephesians Chapter one, we talked about this when we were in the book of Ephesians. Paul says you are chosen in Christ. What does that mean? That God picks some to be saved and others not? No, it means that God had ordained 
from before the foundation of the world that those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are his and are chosen. And he ordained the method whereby people would be saved. Now, how do we see this? Because back in Isaiah, where this idea of election is really first introduced to us, the first person that we are told and who has identified as the elect one is the Messiah. God calls Messiah mine elect one, my servant, the elect one. Election begins with Christ being the chosen one. The next time, that's Isaiah 42, 1. The next time it comes up just a few chapters later in Isaiah 45, verse 4, where Israel is called mine elect. Now, obviously, we, no one would say that, that the Messiah was chosen for salvation. Messiah was chosen to be the Savior, chosen to be salvation. So also, Israel was not chosen to be saved. Just because people are, are part of Israel does not mean that they're going to heaven. This is what the Jews thought in the first century, and it's what Jesus corrected them. Jesus said, you, you think just because you have Abraham as your father? Remember, John the Baptist said this. You think just because Abraham is your father that you're getting into heaven? You think that everybody in, in Israel is saved? No, you you got to come to God, God's way. The Jews asked Jesus. They, Jesus was angry with them because they uh, interrupted one of his sermons after he had fed them, feeding of the 5,000. The next day, he goes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Of course, he walked that way, and uh, they woke up, and he was gone. And then people were like, wow, where did he go? Where did he go? Well, they say he's, he's on the other side of the lake. So they hurried up, and they got there, and they burst in on, into the synagogue while he's, while he's trying to preach a message, and they want more food. Give us, do another miracle. Give us more food. And Jesus rebuked them. He said, you guys aren't even here to see a miracle. You guys are just here for more food. You just, guys are just here for your belly. You guys are just here to get food. He said, you need to do the works of the Father. And they, well, what are the works of the Father? Jesus said, here's the work. Believe on the one he sent. Believe on me. Believe on me. 1 Timothy 5.21, we see that there are angels who are called elect angels. Are they elected for salvation? No, salvation is not for angels. They are chosen for service. Now, Paul here is highlighting the means of salvation, and that's why it's important that we read the whole verse and not just stop where we want to stop. He says that you are, from the beginning, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. In other words, those of you who received the gospel, you believe Jesus died for you and rose again, you believe he's the Son of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God. He died for you, he rose again. And you can be forgiven of your sins simply by faith. You receive God's grace through faith, not of yourselves. You have to receive it as the gift of God, not of works. And if you've done that, if you've turned from your sin and turned to Jesus to be your Savior and to save you from your sin, and you trusted in his resurrection for your resurrection, you have believed the truth. The Holy Spirit has sanctified you. He has, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he has Put you into the body of Christ. John chapter 3, you have been born again by the Spirit of God. You are a new creation. You are born again. And now you can, as, as a newborn child of God, can enter into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. What does it mean? How can you be born again, Nicodemus said. What was Jesus' answer? Well, there's nothing you can do because God chooses it. Is that what he said? No. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish 
but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so Paul is saying the same thing here. He's saying when you believe in the truth, you're born again by the Holy Spirit. And that is the plan that God has chosen from the beginning of time, that this is how he was going to save people. And this is how you have been saved. And so if you are in Christ, you are chosen. You say, well, how do I know? Well, if you're in Christ, you're chosen. And if you want to be chosen, you have to come through Jesus Christ. No man cometh unto the Father, but by Jesus, he said. Jesus said, but by me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You want to come to the Father, you got to come by me. And so the believer is transformed. Now, he's not transformed by his faith. Okay, We're saved through faith. But we're not transformed by faith. We're transformed by the Holy Spirit. You place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit does the work of transformation, the work of regeneration. The Holy Spirit does the work of making you a born, a born again child of God. And so what does that mean? It means that my hope isn't in me. My hope is in him. My hope isn't in my works. My hope is in his works, in the work of what Jesus has accomplished and in the work that the Holy Spirit has accomplished and in the work that the Father has accomplished in putting this plan together, that this is how he is going to make sons and daughters of God. By the way, this is why Peter in 2 Peter tells us, make your calling and election sure. Now, that would be impossible if we have no say in our own election. How could we make sure of our election if we have no say in our election? Peter says, make your calling and election sure. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether ye be in the faith. Test yourselves. What's he saying? He's saying, make sure that you really believe what you think you believe, what you say you believe. Make sure you're not just trusting in some prayer you prayed when you were a kid because somebody said, repeat after me, and they might as well have told you to say abracadabra presto changeo because you did not understand what you were saying or what you meant or what you were doing. And then somebody said, oh, you got to get baptized, and they dunked you in water, and you really had no idea what you were doing. Make sure that you have really confessed your sin and have really trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. You're not trusting in your works. You're not trusting in your goodness. You're not trusting in your righteousness. Make sure, examine yourself. Make sure that really there is a time and a, and a place that you know, my dad says that you know that you know that you have eternal life. That you know that you know that you've trusted in Jesus Christ. That you know that you know that you're not trusting in yourself. That you're trusting that Jesus died for you, rose again, and you have received forgiveness. You've called upon the name of the Lord and you have been saved. So make that calling sure. The response of faith is your responsibility. You are responsible before God because God has made you response-able. And when somebody tells you that because you're born spiritually dead in your trespasses and sin, that means you can't respond in faith to God, you tell them if, if being spiritually dead means you can't respond in faith. It also means you can't respond in rejection either. You can't respond at all. And if you can't, if you're spiritually dead, means if that means you can't respond at all, then you can't reject him either. That's not what spiritual death means. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit cannot speak to you. It means you need him to speak. And 
But guess what? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And so the gospel is supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit that when somebody who is not saved hears the gospel, that it is life spoken to the dead, it is light shining to the spiritually blind, and it has the supernatural power to change you if you will receive it by faith. And receiving the gospel by God's grace, notice, brings us God's glory. Verse 14, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you receive the gospel by faith, that Jesus died for you, rose again, and you turn from your sin and turn to him as your savior, you call upon him, you place your, your faith and trust in his works, not your works, in his life, not your life, you receive the glory of Jesus Christ as well. What does that mean? First John chapter 3, when we see him, we will be like him. Boy, that'll blow your mind if you meditate on that. We will see him, and when we see him, we will be made like him. We'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye into the image of Jesus Christ. No more temptation, no more, no more shame, no more, no more weakness, no more I want to, but I don't. We will be glorified with Christ. Now, that certainty, that hope will ground you if you let it. God is, I'm saved. I'm a child of God. That means God has chosen me. God has a purpose for me. And God has secured that purpose from before the foundation of the world. And I have the glory of Christ, hope, uh, hope inside of me and hope in my future. And that will ground you if you let it. Now, notice again, verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast based on that hope that you have. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. What does that mean? It means you need to be, if you're going to stand firm, committed to the truth of Scripture. Committed to the truth of the Scripture. Tradition here speaks not of what men have created, not how we do church, but what God has revealed or what God has commanded us in His Word. In other words, what the church must do to be faithful. See, there's a what we must do and then there's a how we could do it. Sometimes we think of the uh, traditions of men, that's how we do church, as more important than what God has called us to do, the tradition of God. And what we need to make, now tradition is unavoidable. We're, we're creatures of habit, we're creatures of tradition. But we need to always make sure that our human traditions never rise to the level in our eyes or in our hearts of the tradition of God's word, what God has laid down for us. This is what we must do as a church. We must preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16, 15. We must make disciples of all nations. What does that mean? It means that we baptize those who make a profession of faith and we teach them to observe, to do whatsoever things he has commanded us. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We teach to observe that whatsoever things God has commanded us. And the third thing, Matthew 28, uh, verses verses 19 and 20, is that we focus on Jesus Christ. Lo is, a, is an imperative verb. Behold, imperative verb, this is a command. Know that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that is what we as a church are commanded to do. That is the tradition that we are commanded to hold, the tradition of the apostles revealed to us 
in Paul's day, it was through it was through word of mouth as Paul was teaching, as Peter was teaching, as as James and John were teaching. But now it's through the tradition of the infallible, authoritative word of God. Now, of course, the Bible says a lot more than just those three things. In fact, here, the emphasis of the tradition is on prophecy, is on being committed to the tradition of Pauline prophecy and accepting that and being uh, securing our hope in Paul's teachings of the rapture. That should be our hope as a church. The Lord is coming for us. We're not appointed to wrath. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for the return of the real Christ for his bride, the church. That could happen at any moment. And so we need to be committed. If I'm going to stand firm, which I'm commanded to do, I've got to hold on to what the scripture teaches. Let me give you two more before we close tonight. Both of them in verses 16 and 17. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. The fourth thing I would encourage you to do is be comforted by the amazing grace of God. Be comforted by the amazing grace of God. Now, you don't see this in the English, but in the Greek, Jesus and the Father, the verb is singular. The verb is singular. What is he saying? Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father are the same God. One God, singular verb, both of them are working. Both of them have shown their love for us. The Father in sending the Son to die for our sin. Jesus Christ in being that sinless sacrifice. And now as the resurrected Savior, as being our great high priest and our advocate. As being our, our Lord and our master and our friend. Both the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father have shown their love for us, have demonstrated their love for us. And by grace, they have already given us everlasting life and hope. They've loved us. They have given us everlasting consolation. You already, if you know Jesus, you already have eternal life now. You're not working for it. You're not trying to hold on to it. You have it. It's yours. So live like it. That doesn't mean you you go out and sin. That's not living like you've been given a, an, an everlasting eternal gift. Live in, in appreciation and in service and in glory and in praise of the one father and son who have given it to you. The everlasting life and the hope that we will not endure the wrath of God it is impossible. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. Romans 8.1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be comforted by the amazing grace of God. See, as Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, you used to be, before you were saved, you had no hope. You were without hope. You were hopeless. But God intervened. And Jesus came. He died for you. He rose again. He made a way for you to have hope. And now that you've received Christ and you're in Christ, now you have hope. And Paul is saying the same thing to the Thessalonians here tonight. Be comforted by the amazing grace of God. You know, there's, there's something amazing about this passage of Scripture, just these few verses. I want to just quote to you something that uh, Chuck Swindoll uh, wrote in his commentary. He said, did you notice that in this brief 
litany of doctrinal truths, Paul touches on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. Salvation and election, soteriology. The church, ecclesiology. Spiritual growth, that's our sanctification. And even our future glory, that's eschatology, the study of end times. Together, these already bright points of doctrine form the sunshine of theological truth that lights up their dark days of suffering. Paul's saying, when you get discouraged, you got to become a theologian. And you got to study God. And you got to study what God said about salvation and what it means for you today, that you're, you're chosen of God, that you now have the, glory, the hope of glory, that you're part of the body of Christ, that the Spirit has put you into the body of Christ, set you apart for God's purpose, and He is at work in you to make you more and more like Jesus Christ, and you have a hope and a certain future. And then uh, Swindoll quotes uh, John Stott, and he says, John Stott sums it up well. In a single sentence, the apostle's mind sweeps from the beginning to the glory. There is no room in such a conviction for fears about Christian instability. Let the devil mount his fiercest attack on the feeblest saint. Let the Antichrist be revealed and the rebellion breaks out. Of course, we know we're not going to be here for that. Yet over against the instability of our circumstances and our characters, we set the eternal stability and the purpose of God. Be comforted by the amazing grace of God. And lastly, again, verses 16 and 17, be cemented in the righteousness of God in your words and in your work. And here again, Election, as it does everywhere else it's used in Old Testament and New Testament, it circles back around to what we are called to do, what we are called to be. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath already prepared beforehand that we should walk in them you are chosen to be but also chosen to do god has a purpose for you and it's not just to sit and soak until he comes back for us it is to be serving him to live out the purpose the calling of god and how we talk about him what, what do we talk about well what is paul talking about he's talking about prayer he's talking about the Father, the Son. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about our hope in Christ. Those are the things that we should be focused on, that we should be talking about, but not just talking. We should be doing it in every good word and work. So as I am comforted, as I meditate on God's grace, if I'm truly getting God's grace, it should motivate me to do something in response, not because I'm trying to earn it, but because I'm thankful for it. So where do you need to check the foundation of your life tonight? Do you need to strengthen your charity, your love for other Christians? Do you need to do more prayer, pray, praying more for each other and for your brothers and sisters, more appreciative of, of them and how much God loves them? Do you need to get more grounding in the certainty of your calling in Christ? Do you need to make sure that you know that you know? that you have eternal life? 
that you really have placed your faith in Jesus? Do you need to affirm that tonight? Do you need to be more committed to the truths of Scripture? Do you need to be more comforted by God's grace because you had a rough week or you, maybe you've had a rough year? And yeah, you know you're saved, but you don't know how God could still love you after what you've been struggling with. Do you need to be comforted more and more by the amazing grace of God tonight? Or is it that you need to be more and more cemented in how you live, the righteousness of God in how you talk and in how you walk? Whatever it is, as we close tonight, uh, we're not going to have a, a time of invitation, uh, but I'll be here afterwards uh, if you need to talk, and I would just encourage you before you go tonight, whatever the Holy Spirit is asking you to do as we close in prayer, ask Him to, to reveal to you what is it that He's asking you to do, and then spend some time talking with the Holy Spirit tonight before we go. Father, uh, we thank You, God, for the power of Your Word, the hope that it brings us as we, God, uh, meditate on how much you love us, the grace you have poured out for us in sending Jesus to be our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our King, our friend, our resurrection, and our hope. And Father, the Holy Spirit have you placed inside of us to sanctify us in Christ, and then God, to, to continually be sanctifying us and making us more and more like Christ as we uh, submit to that sanctification process. And Father, I pray that we would be comforted and strengthened tonight through who you are and the promises that you have made to us that we would comfort our hearts and live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I'll be here for a few minutes after the service. If anyone needs to talk, uh, Lord willing, we'll see you on Wednesday night. You are dismissed. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful. Thank you.